0: Welcome to the Redeemer Church Odessa podcast. We are a gospel-centered, missional family that is rooted in biblical community and discipleship serving Odessa, Texas. Good morning. Uh, my name is Gavin, and I serve here at Redeemer Odessa. We're going to be in John one twenty nine through 34 in the ESV version. he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Thank you, Gavin. Hey, just as an aside, Gavin said he serves here, but we have zero technology if Gavin was never born. So, um, yeah, anything, anything tech-related, he's our guy. Uh, That's what I've always said, find the smartest Gen Zer you know and tell him to fix the stuff, and he does it, so uh, thanks for serving here, Gavin. Uh, My name's Tanner House, I'm the lead pastor here. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being with us this morning. You can take a minute, uh, scan a QR code, uh, and, and that'll pull up a Connect card. We'd love an opportunity to serve you and see how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand, Daniel will bring you one, or if you're on your phone... We use the ESV. Uh, I've been trying to preach shorter this semester, uh, but today i got a lot to say, so uh, here it is. One of the consequences of social media in our society has been the excess, the rampant self-promotion that social media has created. We have the ability to put whatever image of ourselves out there that we'd like. We can filter it in a way to make us look the way that we want to be seen. We even have the ability to be someone or something completely different than who we are. Uh, A few years back, there was an NBA player who created for himself a fake Twitter account so he could respond to all the people who were talking trash about him on the Internet. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but his name sounds like... 11 Koran. So anyways, we are out as a society to build this image to make ourselves out to be something in the eyes of the watching world. One day I might actually have to apologize to my kids for missing large portions of their childhood while trying to figure out which app I wanted to use to get validated by strangers. We spend so much of our time and our energy trying to build ourselves up. We can project a lot of confidence out to the world from behind the safety of our phones. But statistically speaking, our world in general, and more specifically our country, is being crippled under the weight of anxiety and being crippled under the weight of depression. And we are reporting the lowest levels of self-esteem in history. And there are probably several reasons that this happens, but I do think one of the major contributions to this trend is rooted in our fundamental misunderstanding of our purpose and our identity. And these are rooted in a misunderstanding of the gospel. We have been placed on this earth to worship and glorify God. Unfortunately... We get stuck in this place of trying to fit in, of not wanting to miss out, of not wanting our kids to miss out, and we fill up our lives with worldly trinkets to medicate our feelings. For Christians, though, it's deeper than that. When Christ saves us by faith in him, we go from being a slave to sin to a son or a daughter of God through Christ's righteousness that he has given to us. And so what that means is if you are in Christ, you have been given a new identity, and with the new identity comes a new pursuit. We go from living for ourselves to living for God. And when our chief pursuits are not God and not his glory, and when we run back to the things that aren't meant to satisfy us, We forget our new identities that have been given to us. We forget our new identities that have been bought. And today, our text shows us a picture of humility and contentment in who Christ is and who we are in Christ. We're going to look at the ministry of John the Baptist today. And as we do, I want us to really consider his response to the interrogation from this group of people known as the Jews. John is not trying to prop himself up. Though we could have. John points not to himself, but something better. John points not to himself, but to the work of God on his behalf. So may we just consider that in our lives this morning and see if this is true of us as well. Before we dive into this text, let's pray and ask the, the Lord for help. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our great need for you. Lord by your Holy Spirit, may you just help us to take an honest look at our lives and examine our hearts and examine our motives and examine our relationship to you. Lord, call us to faith and call us to repentance. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you pray for yourself that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen. All right, John chapter 1. We're actually going to back up a little bit from where Gavin read and begin in verse 19. The text says, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent... Priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So to fully understand what's going on here, let's set up the context. This is the ministry of John the Baptist. He came to call people to faith and repentance, and he was baptizing people in the the River Jordan. uh, Baptism during this time was a common practice for people who were converting from whatever pagan religion they were into Judaism. Jews were not baptized into Judaism, but Gentiles would, after they convert, baptize themselves. It was a ritual cleansing of leaving the life of an unclean Gentile behind and coming into the cleanliness of Judaism. But here's this man, John the Baptist, preaching a message of repentance of sin. And he's preaching not to Gentiles, but to Jews. His message was, hey, the Messiah is about to arrive, and you, Israel, are not ready. You are unclean in your heart. And because of what he was doing and what he was saying, he was attracting a lot of attention. And so we see this group, the text says, from Jerusalem wanting to find out what's going on and who is this guy. And this is the first time in the Gospel of John that we're going to see the Jews. And it won't be the last. When John speaks of the Jews in this way, he's referring to a group known as the Pharisees. This is an elite class of Jews that were supposed to be pointing people towards Jesus the Messiah, but instead they were always in conflict with Jesus. The apostle John, the writer of the Gospel of John, gives us an interesting juxtaposition between John the Baptist and the Jews. The Jews were sent from Jerusalem. John the Baptist, on the other hand, the text says, was sent from God. They came to ask John a series of questions. They said, who are you? They're fishing for information. In verse 20, which reads kind of weirdly in the English, is in the strongest emphatic possible terms in the Greek, John says, I am not the Christ. John starts by saying, hey, leave no doubt in your minds. I'm not the Messiah. And they said, well, you must be Elijah then. This is a strange question. Elijah is an Old Testament prophet, and he had been gone for several hundred years at this point. But if you look at Elijah in the Old Testament and John the Baptist in the New Testament, they have some similarities in the way that they dressed, in the way that they looked, and they also preached a similar message. They were preaching openly against sin, and more specifically, they were preaching openly against sin uh, in the lives of those who were supposed to be leading God's people. Their message was of repentance. The Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi, and it's a prophetic book. And Malachi 4 ends with Malachi the prophet recording the words of God. Malachi 4.5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. God had promised that he would send Elijah to announce the day in which the Lord would come. And so they say, are you Elijah? And John says, I'm not Elijah. R.C. Sproul says that John's response kind of creates a problem because Jesus says that John the Baptist is, in fact, Elijah. Matthew 11, 11 through 15, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law in, in prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Based on the testimony of Jesus... It appears that Jesus has a higher view of John the Baptist than John has of himself. Though he is not reincarnated Elijah like the Jews seem to have been expecting, he is in fact the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. This was also what the angel told John's father before his birth in Luke 1 says, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So then they ask him, if he's not Elijah, then you must be the prophet. We see in Deuteronomy 18 Moses telling the people of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. These are the words of Moses given to the nation of Israel as they are about to enter the promised land. Moses, however, will not be the one to lead them in because of his sin while they were wandering in the wilderness. But he is prophesying, there will be another like Moses, and this will be Jesus. So the Pharisees ask him, are you the prophet, the one that Moses promised was to come? And John the Baptist says, no. The Jewish leaders are missing the point of Moses' prophecy. If John is not the Christ, then he can't be the prophet either. Moses was not just a prophet He was also a mediator between God and man in the Old Testament. He would speak to God on behalf of the people. He would intercede on behalf of the people before God, and God spoke to Moses directly. So Moses is saying, there's another one coming. There's another prophet like me. This other prophet would be one who would mediate also between you and God. And the great mediator in the New Testament is Jesus, whose blood speaks our pardon against sin, mediating then before God, the just judge on our behalf. And John the Baptist is not able to do this. So finally, these Jews are realizing that they are getting nowhere, and they're like, All right, dude, who are you then? And John responds with scripture. He quotes Isaiah 43 A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John says, I have come to show you who he is. I'm pointing to the Messiah. Make straight the highway. Build the road that leads you back to the King. So apparently they're not satisfied with any of this. They're not satisfied with the identity of John. They follow up their interrogation by asking him, if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah, you're not this prophet, what gives you the right to baptize people? He's already answered this question. His role is to point people towards Jesus Christ as the way to salvation. The baptism he's administering is not a baptism that saves, but a visible symbol of repentance. And look at what he says in verse 26. He says, There is one among you, one of your own who has been revealed to you that you don't know or don't recognize, and he is greater than I. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. In this time in Jewish history the Pharisees would know what John the Baptist was saying when he was saying this. And this is a shocking statement. A Jewish rabbi would have disciples and they would attend to his needs. They would get his food for him. They would make his housing arrangements for him. Whatever he needed, his disciples would accommodate. Functionally, they were to take on the role of a servant. However... The disciples of a rabbi would never stoop down and touch his feet and take off his sandals. For Jews, feet were unclean and they were not to be touched. This role was reserved for a slave. This was a humiliating task, to stoop down and touch someone's feet. A slave could be expected to do this but not a disciple. And John the Baptist is saying, I'm not even worthy of that distinction. And then the Jews from Jerusalem depart, John the Baptist. And what we ought to take note of here is John's humility. If I'm honest, when I am met with combative questioning like this, you can ask my wife or ask anybody on staff, when I'm met with combative questioning or just... Purely question, doesn't have to be combative. My response can tend towards defensiveness, sometimes anger. John points the conversation back to Jesus. John could have leaned on his credentials. So I'm not sure about any of you... But my birth was not foretold to my ancestors hundreds of years beforehand. And to my knowledge, an angel did not appear to my dad and say, Lo, Reggie, that's that's my dad's name for some reason. Your wife is with child, and he will be named Tanner, and he shall plant a church in the fundome with his friends someday. John had not only Old Testament prophecies concerning him, but angelic testimony about his birth. When the Pharisees were asking him what gave him the right, he could have responded, God and the angels, who do you think you are talking to me? but he didn't do that. He pointed to Jesus. His desire and his response to their questioning was to magnify Christ. He's saying, I'm not the one you need to know about. I'm an unworthy servant who has been given grace upon measure. Grace beyond measure, excuse me. There is one coming who will fix what is broken. John is an example for us. We're not asked to boast in ourselves, but to point to whatever is good in us that, if we're honest, is only there because of Jesus' work to us. We're asked to boast in our great God in Christ. We don't need to boast in our money. We don't need to boast in our families. We don't need to boast in our careers or our influence or whatever else, but only Jesus. Jesus. We're called to be secure in our identities as God's children. And I think what our boasting reveals or our pursuit of worldly things reveals is that we may not fully or really at all believe for the sum of our life what Jesus has done for us. I wonder how much freedom we'd feel. I wonder how much freedom you would feel feel if we function like the resurrection was for us? Truly and factually, our great God has defeated our sin and our death has been dealt with. That's the greatest news of all. And we spend so much time and so much energy in our lives trying to feel better about our life or trying to keep up with everyone else around us. When in reality, God is just asking for us to trust Him. God is just asking us to trust that he is going to provide for us and that we don't need this stuff that we're after and we don't need the applause of man because none of it is ever really going to satisfy you. The invitation is rest. It's rest in the work that he has done for us. The invitation for rest allows us to worship Jesus and enjoy and delight in Jesus, which ought to be our primary suit if you claim to be a Christian, to worship him and enjoy Christ forever. How much freedom would you feel if you could just be okay with what you had? And how much freedom would you feel if you could just be okay with who you were and allow God to change you moment by moment instead of trying to do it all on your own? What would look different in your life if you were honest with yourself and your community and just said, hey, I need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel What would change in your marriage if you were willing to bring your struggles into the light and actually let some people know you? What would change in your parenting or your relationship to money or your singleness or anything else if you stopped viewing your life as if it actually belonged to you? And what would look different in your life if you decided that you were going to commit fully to the Lord instead of just giving a half hearted pursuit? Look, I don't know if this is true of you, but I think it's true of me, and so it's probably true of you too. When I'm struggling, when I'm wanting things to be different, dare I say better in my life, I want things to be better in my life. I think if I were to take an honest look at my life, a lot of times it's rooted in discontentment. I'm discontent. And that leads me to envy. And sometimes even depression and anxiety. But what I've learned is that the Lord is using those moments to draw me in. It's not meant to push you away, but to draw you in. And the Lord is trying to draw you in by prayer and meditating on the Word. But when you never pray, or when we're never in the Word, we forget how to use the tools in our tool belt to help us fight the battle and to suffer well and to strive after Jesus. John's example is not an example of how to follow the Lord when things are good. I don't want to spoil it, but about halfway through the book of John, he gets his head lopped off. It's not an example of how to follow Jesus when things are good. And when everything seems to be going our way. But his example is to follow the Lord and depend on Christ in all circumstances. The goal of church is of the church, is faith and dependency on Jesus. And we gather together to be reminded of his goodness to us. We gather on Sundays to worship him and then we're meant to scatter into our communities as missionaries with a message to share. So listen, you were not here by accident. You were not in Odessa or Midland, if that one applies to you, you're not there by accident. The families that you have, the job that you have, is not by accident. The school that you attend and who you attend it with is not by accident, it is God ordained. And God wants to use you right where you are for kingdom work, but unfortunately, our culture is always looking for what is next and what is better than this. I love college athletics, and in college sports right now, we have a thing known as the transfer portal. It's designed so collegiate athletes can change schools uh, without penalty, um, At the drop of a hat, it feels like sometimes. And we sort of treat life like that. I don't like this job, so I'm going to complain and find a new one. I don't like this or that, and I need something better. I deserve something better. I have earned something better, right? God, come on. God, help me out. Screams of entitlement. But rather, what if we elevated our understanding of God's sovereignty and saw our jobs and our families and our schools and our friend groups as opportunities to live missionally? When was the last time you had a spiritual conversation with someone that didn't know the Lord? At work or at school or at the grocery store? Christ is calling us to be salt and light in word and deed and rejoice in what the Lord has done for us right where we're at. The text then takes us to the next day. Let's look at this together. The next day he saw that he, being John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So the Gospel of John doesn't give an account of the baptism of Jesus But it is assumed by the Apostle John that his readers would be familiar with this event. So if you're not, um, Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, those are the texts you can read on the story of the baptism of Jesus. John recounts this event in verses 32 and 33 where he baptizes Jesus. And when he does, the heavens open up and the Holy Spirit descends on Christ like a dove and rests on him. John knew... Jesus. John knew Jesus in a personal sense because they were cousins. But until this moment, John didn't fully understand who Jesus was. At Jesus' baptism, John realizes that the promises of God made in the Old Testament were being fulfilled in Jesus. This Jesus is your Messiah. John sees Jesus walking along the road, and he rightly proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist is calling us back to the Passover in Exodus 12 when the nation of Israel sacrificed lambs, pure and spotless lambs, with, and with their blood they painted their doorposts and the lentils of the door of their homes. And when the Spirit of God would see the blood, he would pass over the house, thus saving those inside. Conversely, the Egyptians did not do this, and the Spirit of God then killed the firstborn males in all the households of Egypt. And so every year at Passover, the Israelites would remember this by sacrificing lambs and having a Passover feast. But also in Judaism, there would be two sacrifices every single day, one in the morning and one in the evening, on behalf of the people of God to pay for their sins. Each day, each day, A lamb must be slaughtered because of sin. Blood must be shed for sin to be forgiven. These lambs were the sacrifice that paid for the sin of the people. God created man and said, enjoy my creation. You have free reign, except don't eat the fruit from this one tree. And man, our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed and rebelled against God. And were cast out of the garden, away from the presence of the Lord. But before they left, God in his mercy sacrificed a lamb to clothe them. To cover their shame. This sacrifice was made by God, who sacrificed a lamb in the place of Adam and Eve. And people have been rebelling against God ever since. The sacrifice of a lamb paid for their sins, though it didn't fully clear the debt. It was just a partial payment. The same as these lambs that were sacrificed daily. But also these lambs served to point forward to the one who would be sent from God to shed his own blood. One time so that sin would be forgiven forever. This payment was made in full and here's how. The lamb was a sacrifice but it was also a substitute. The sinner would bring their sacrifice to pay for their sins. The sinner was having to make payment on their own to pay for their sin debt. But the Lamb of God was brought by God to pay for our sins. God had no sin that needed to be covered, but he provided a substitute in himself. He sent the only all-sufficient, once-for-all substitute that could pay the full price of the penalty against sin, which is death and separation against God for all eternity. Our sin has separated us from God, and God in Christ paid that sin penalty in order for us to be reconciled back to him. This was our price to pay. And Jesus paid it. John the Baptist says, behold, look to him. This is the one. He is the one you have been waiting for. He is the one, the rescuer, the redeemer. He takes your sinful, treasonous rebellion upon himself. He is your lamb without blemish, your pure and spotless lamb. And God laid upon him our punishment. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. And he has adopted us as his children lamb to take away our sin he lived perfectly and then he died perfectly and the fact that he rose is a judgment upon Christ's righteousness meaning that because he was righteous he couldn't stay dead because the penalty of sin is death and Christ never sinned and so he rose and all of this now in this moment belongs to us as believers we've been loved forgiven and adopted John the Baptist is called the witness over and over again in the Gospels. And is that true of you? Many of us, many of us are too content just watching the world around us persist in sin and not really speaking up for the truth of Christ. Many of us find ourselves too busy building our own images and reputations, often more concerned with about what other people will think about us than what the cross and the resurrection of Jesus means for me. We may be too busy trying to earn. We may be too busy trying to achieve this identity. But I want to remind you, Christian, that this identity has been earned for you already. You don't have to strive to make yourself better in order to be loved. That work has been done for you. I'm reading this Exodus commentary with my wife a few times a week. And, and this week we read about Moses and the burning bush. And uh, it got me to thinking about the response of people in the Old Testament in the presence of God. Is Fear. In our 21st century Western world, though, we have reduced the fear of God to reverence. Like, we serve a God who would be well within his rights to destroy us because he is a just God, rightly offended by our sin, and he would be just to destroy us. Let us muster up a little bit of reverence when we can. And out of that... Too often, we will verbally assent to the existence of God. But if we're not careful, we can create a God in our own image that has little to no impact on our life. Listen, I'm not saying any of this for your guilt or for your shame, but here's what it means to make a God in your own image. We know what the Bible is calling us to. And we still sometimes feel okay doing the exact opposite. All right, here's a personal story. When I was in college, I knew I was going to be a pastor. And kids in here, including my own, do as I say, not as I did. Uh, I had such a low view of drunkenness. And I knew that the Bible said that I should not get drunk. But man, did I sure enjoy being the life of the party. And I would be super holy, and then on Thursday nights, my apartment would be lit. I became an abuser of alcohol. But worse, I became a willful abuser of grace. God has to forgive me. That's how I functioned. So I cared so little about my own personal holiness, and I provided a place for other people to disregard their personal holiness, and I led a group of my friends into stupidity and sinfulness. And many of my friends were not and still aren't believers. And it's not just me, but it's certainly me too. We do this with a lot of things. I know the Lord says I should be generous, but I've convinced myself that he isn't going to provide for me. So I'm not going to give anything to the church, or I'm going to give very little to the church because I don't trust that God's going to provide for me. I know the scripture says I need to be with the body. But I am too tired today. Or I'm too stressed today. Or I'm too busy this weekend or this week. Or I'm resting from the vacation that I took because I'm too out of town all the time. Or I know I shouldn't lust, but man, she looks good. But God will forgive me. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, so God understands my struggle. But consider the cross of Christ to you. God crushed his own son on your behalf. Our response shouldn't be, Jesus, when I can squeeze you in, or when I feel like it. But our response is worship. And our response is devotion to the Lamb of God who has paid for our sin and paid for our shame. What would change in your life if you really and truly stopped living like you were God and submitted to God in faith and obedience and submitted to God who has invited you into faith and life with him? What if God wants to replace your anxiety with trust? Would you be willing to take steps towards him to allow you to trust him fully? What if God wants to heal brokenness in your marriage? Would you be willing to seek help within your community like God is asking you to what if God wants to set you free from sexual sin? Would you confess that you're struggling to God and and your faith family who loves you? What if God wants to grow you in your desires to be in the Word? Would you be humble and ask somebody to hold you accountable? What if God wants to grow in you a desire to be a disciple maker? Are you willing to pursue that and ask somebody? Are you willing to be a disciple yourself? Listen, if you're a Christian, you have been changed. You are now a son or a daughter, which means out of darkness and into light. But when you persist in your sin, when we persist in our sin, when we never cling to Christ, we function like orphans in a slum. And Christ is beckoning you, come receive forgiveness, receive help. Your identity as a child means that you are not alone in the struggle, so cling to the cross. Consider the weight of your sin and the weight of the cross and repent and turn from your sin through faith and confession that you need forgiveness and believe and receive his forgiveness. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information or to give to this ministry, please visit RedeemerChurchOdessa.org.